This is Dr. Aaron Kuzel, and this is the Louisville Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Louisville Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kuzel, and today we're going to be enter the Kuzi's Corner and talk a little bit about the case against cervical spine immobilization, or the case against cervical collars. A couple disclaimers here before we get started. Make sure to follow your protocols. Obviously, obey what the state has recommended. This is just a theoretical and review of research. This is not a recommendation to stop using seat collars. Additionally, I'll be talking at the Kentucky Statewide Trauma and EMS Symposium on October 17th to the 19th. If you're interested and want to hear from some of the great physicians uh, from University of Kentucky, University of Louisville that make up our trauma network in Kentucky, I highly encourage you to join us. So let's talk about the history of cervical spine immobilization and seat collars. So let's look at the statistics. Blunt trauma accounts for 2 to 6.6% risk of C-spine injury. Uh, there are approximately 5 million patients placed in C-collars per year. Of those 5 million patients, only we see about 12,000 new cases of spinal injury in the United States annually. So out of the 5 million patients in the C-collar per year, only 12,000 of them actually have spinal cord injury. Now, how did we get to this point of using rigid C-collars? Well, in 1984, we created the National Standard Curriculum for Emergency Medical Technicians and Ambulances. Really, their recommendation was, when in doubt, immobilize the spine. And so they figured out that we should use a rigid a rigid collar for this. And the reasoning behind that was because possibly we had an unstable C-spine. They were concerned that additional movement in 1984 led to the C-spine could lead to more damage that the seat collar could prevent potentially harmful movement and causing worsening damage to the cervical spine, and that the spinal mobilization was relatively harmless. But the question that we have here is, well, is it relatively harmless? And we'll discuss that later in my case against seat collars. I find it interesting that from 1984, we had a big study in Malaysia in 1998, and the study looked at those patients that were transported for blunt trauma that had not did not have a seat collar because it wasn't they really didn't have a lot of seat collars in Malaysia uh, versus those patients that got seat collars and from their evaluation of these Malaysian patients they found there really was no difference in neurological outcomes on patients receiving seat collar but even after 1998 the recommendations from 2023 and 2007 from the American College of Surgeons still recommends the use of seat collars even if though in 1998 we had reports that there wasn't any difference between them. So how did we get to this point and where are we now? Well, from the American College of Surgeons, they basically recommend that you place a seat collar on patients in EMS for further evaluation by a trauma surgeon or emergency physician. Now, we have got to the point that we can kind of eliminate the seat collar if a patient is alert, there's no neurodeficit, the patient has complete free range of cervical motion, meaning 45 degrees to the right, 45 degrees neck turn to the left, and no distracting injury. And we found with those four things, you have a negative predictive value of a spinal cord injury at 99.8%, and you can rule out a spinal cord injury with a sensitivity of 98.1%. And really, K-beams has kind of caught on board with this. So currently, the cervical spine protocol for K-beams starts with three steps. So number one, if you have any one of the high risk factors which mandates immobilization, and these three risk factors include an age greater than or equal to 65, so a geriatric patient, if they are greater than 65 in a blunt trauma, they'd get C-spine immobilization. If they have a dangerous mechanism, as defined as a fall from greater than or equal to three feet, or basically five stairs, axial load to the head, so basically diving head first, 
A motor vehicle collision at high speed, which they define as greater than or equal to 65 miles per hour, a rollover motor vehicle accident or ejection, ATV accident or bicycle collision with an object, so such as a post, a car, or a tree. If any of those are negative, you can move to step two. If any of those are positive, meaning that you have a dangerous mechanism or I forgot to mention numbness or tingling in the extremities, if you have that and and or age of greater than or equal to 65, you immediately put the C collar on. If no, you then look if there's any one low risk factor that may restrict range of motion evaluation. So essentially, if you have any of these four, you still will do a C-spine immobilization. So if it's more than a simple rear end MVC, meaning they were pushed into oncoming traffic, they were hit by a bus or a large truck, semi-truck, if they rolled over or they were hit at a high rate of speed, greater than or equal to 65 miles per hour, you would still do C-spine immobilization and cervical collar. If they were non-ambulatory at the scene, then they get C-spine. If they had neck pain at the scene when asked, then C-spine. If they had pain during midline C-spine palpation, again, that results in C-collar. If they have none of those, then you can go and see if they can voluntarily actively rotate their neck 45 degrees to the left and right uh, when requested. If they're able to do that, then there's no need for C-spine immobilization according to K-beams. If they are unable to turn their head shoulder to shoulder, then they need C-spine immobilization. So that's currently the recommendations for this. And so let's talk a little bit, Are is there a benefit to C-collars? Clearly, we keep doing this and we've been doing this since 1984. So there has to be some benefits, right? There has to be what the point is. This is to not allow for worsening cervical spine injury and to allow for good neurologic outcomes. Well, we're kind of finding that that's not the case. There was a meta-analysis study from the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery that occurred in 2022. And their findings is they looked at multiple studies, nine big studies, um, where they had a lot of patients and they reviewed and they found that there was a study in 2008 by Hoswald and immobilization at 2008 had no effect on neural outcomes. Now, a similar study performed by Underbrink in 2018, almost 10 years later, we find no difference in neurodeficit still. So there's no difference between having a seat collar and those not having a seat collar when it comes to neurological outcomes. Further in the study, of the nine studies they reviewed from 2008 all the way to 2018, none of the studies that they reviewed, these large studies that they kind of did a meta-analysis on, none of those studies reported benefits of seat collars. And actually, a majority of the studies' conclusions were they were actually opposed to seat collar use. Now, granted, this is not an American study. This is from the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery. And the reason makes sense, right? To get a cervical spine injury, it takes a heck of a lot of trauma. When we see cervical spine injuries, they're either a rejection from the vehicle, especially if it's a young patient, it's ejected from the vehicle, it's a motorcycle accident where they're unhelmeted, and large-scale trauma. Now, granted, we see a lot more in elderly falls, but for your younger patients, it takes a lot of force. And you moving them from the ground to the bed is not the same amount of force as getting them ejected through the window. It is impossible to completely restrict the spine. Even the halo mechanism where they actually, neurosurgery uses this, that big cage on their, on screwed into their forehead, still allows for four degrees of motion. Additionally, the body kind of already serves as a splint. With C-spine injuries, the muscles of the neck contract and along with pain, the body serves as a splint and limits additional motion just because you're having pain to that right neck and also those muscles are contracted. So it really doesn't allow you to have significant amount of motion. So now that we can't really demonstrate a benefit is their potential harm when it comes to C collars. And here comes the case against C collars. 
So going back to that 1984 document, they said that immobilization is relatively harmless. But my question is, is it relatively harmless? And so I'm going to focus on a couple things with this that show there could be some potential harms. Number one, there is concern for increased risk of death in penetrating trauma. There is potential increased intracranial pressure with the use of seed collars. There are intubation difficulties, especially with RSI using uh, seed collars. They can potentially worsen C-spine injuries and also can lead to ulcers, pain, and discomfort, which we're well aware of. But let's focus on the most concerning, penetrating traumas. Currently, seat collars are not recommended for penetrating trauma. They found in a 2010 study, the use of seat collars in penetrating trauma actually increased the risk of death or increased mortality in patients with penetrating trauma. And the reason because of this was that neck injuries are often overlooked. In this 2010 study by Hoyt and Kalish, they looked at patients with the cervical spine collar in penetrating trauma, and they found that large number of patient population uh, that had penetrating trauma with cervical spine, only 0.01% of those patients had a spinal cord injury. The number needed to treat, the number of patients needing a cervical spine to treat one patient with spinal cord injury was 1,032 patients. Now, the number needed to harm, the number needed to harm one patient by putting a cervical spine on a penetrating trauma was 66. The number needed to treat was 1,032. 1,032 patients need to have C-collar to have one successful treatment, but the number needed to harm was one in 66. Additionally, in the same study in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, they found patients in C-collars with penetrating trauma were two times more likely to die than those patients who did not get a C-collar in penetrating trauma. So K-beams is kind of caught on board. We do not recommend C-collars in penetrating trauma. So there is a potential harm, but that doesn't excuse us from blunt trauma. This is just in penetrating trauma. Now, what about ICP and increased intracranial pressure? Well, the thought is that C-collars, based on where they're properly pushed, can actually compress on the jugular veins. The collar restricts venous drainage of the jugular vein, but not tight enough to restrict arterial blood flow into the cranial vault. So what you get is this arterial flow into the vault of the cranium, is, which is unimpeded, and you can't get blood out through venous outflow because the C collar is actually restricting that leaving of blood flow. And that actually leads to increased ICP. In a 2022 study of meta-analysis in trauma care, in the journal of trauma care, they actually found that patients with EVDs who had C collars on actually had an increase of intracranial pressure of 4.4 milligrams per mercury to 18 millimeters uh, milligrams, millimeters mercury to 18 millimeters mercury. And then they found with these patients that had EVD, which is a device that measures uh, intracranial pressure placed by neurosurgeons, they found that when you remove the C-collar, intracranial pressure decreased. We know that C-collars are dangerous in penetrating trauma. We know they increase ICP. What about their effect on intubation? Well, we know that C-collars make RSI and intubation more difficult. And the reason is that properly applied C-collars they found in studies in 2014 and 2005 that it actually can limit the amount of mouth opening by greater than 25%. So you can limit your airway field by greater than 25%. The other interesting thing is there have been no reported cases of intubation causing or worsening C-spine injury. That being said, there is a caveat. We have a lot of bias in research, and oftentimes we're not willing to admit when we make mistakes. So just because a case has not been reported of intubation causing worsening C-spine injury or causing a C-spine injury 
doesn't mean that there has not been a case happen. There's just been none that have been reported. Another case against Sea College is they could potentially worsen injury. In a study in 2010 uh, in the journal Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, they actually found that when the injury was at C1 and C2, you could actually see about a 7.3 millimeter separation increase between C1 and C2, and you actually got some spinal cord stretching. Theoretically, you could potentially injure the spinal cord if you had a high uh, cervical spine injury, such as one that's an axial load injury that we see with ejections from vehicles as well as from uh, diving headfirst injuries. And of course, the patients actually do not enjoy being in seat collars. If any of you you in training has been in a seat collar more than 10 minutes, it gets kind of old and your neck kind of hurts and you've already just suffered a trauma. You're having some level of injury and pain uh, and now you're having that worse by a very stiff neck so there are some discomfort especially patients as they're being boarded in the emergency room waiting for transport that could be in the cervical collar for hours um, to potentially days waiting for uh, transport there could be the potential of developing pressure ulcers and there are many studies including 2014 2013 even in 1994 98 that raised the alarm that c collars are discomfort dis not comfortable and that they also could potentially lead to pressure ulcers. That's my case against seat collars. Based on the literature that we see, there's not enough evidence to support that they are actually providing enough evidence of benefit. But on the contrary, I think they may be causing some harm. Now that being said, I'm not telling you to go rogue and just get rid of the seat collar. Most of the national organizations are still in agreement that you should do seat collar. So let's review some of those organizations and what are their recommendations. Well, the National Association of EMS Physicians actually put out a joint statement just recently about this. The National Association of EMS Physicians agree that unstable spinal column injuries can progress to severe neurological injuries in the presence of excessive movement of the injured spine. They recommend that indications for spinal motion restriction, including cervical immobilization following blunt trauma, include altered level of consciousness, midline neck or back pain or tenderness, focal neurologic signs or deficits, or symptoms of uh, numbness and paresthesia, anatomic deformity of the spine, or distracting circumstances of injury, such as an open fracture. Now, they also provide pediatric recommendations for cervical collar that should be applied in the pediatric population. If the pediatric patient is complaining of neck pain at all, they have torticollis, neurologic deficit, altered mental status, including a GCS of less than 15 or intoxication, and involvement in a high-risk motor vehicle collision. What does the trauma service say? Now that's the National Association of EMS Physicians. Now there are two different organizations that kind of have different views points when it comes to this. Now the International Trauma Life Support Group actually says that there should be selective use of seat collars in blunt trauma only. And they actually support the de-emphasis of seat collars and spinal motion restriction in patients who are awake with, and who have no focal injury or neurologic symptoms. So awake patients, even if they have pain, but no focal injury or neurological symptoms, don't necessarily need C collar and boarding. Now, the American College of Surgeons, however, says that EMS should still place C collars in blunt trauma until they are further assessed by a physician.
They do not recommend seat collars and penetrating trauma, but they also recommend uh, seat collars to be placed more liberally and more imaging in the older population, kind of consistent with what K-Beams has recommended. So that's it on the case against seat collars for me. I think this is not something to necessarily throw out seat collars and go through ambulances and throw them in the trash. I think they're still a very important tool and part of the pre-hospital world. And all the major national organizations still are recommending at this time seat collars. And I think we still need a little bit of research. There's not a lot of great evidence and abilities to do randomized control trials on cervical spine immobilization. Really hard to do prospective trials, especially when you have a documented uh, benefit and then telling someone that you're not going to get that documented benefit. It's very difficult to run trials like this. So I think we're kind of stuck. I think uh, there's a lot of interest lately within 2022, 2023, as early as 2018, looking and reevaluating the use of spinal motion restriction, board and collar and cervical immobilization. So I'm curious to see in the next five years where we end up and if if C collars really do get de-emphasized like the International Trauma Life Support uh, recommends. But this has been uh, the Louisville Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. Thank you again for joining me. I hope this has been helpful and intellectually stimulating. And of course, as always, stay safe out there.